Chapter Thirty of Forest Days by G. P. R. James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirty. It was an hour past midnight. The sentries had just been relieved upon the castle wall, and Hugh de Mothama sat by the window, looking out into the depth of sight and gazing at the far twinkling of the stars. The mind was occupied in the same manner as the body for it was looking forth into the dark night of death, and marking the small bright shining lights from heaven that tell of other worlds beyond. His fate had been announced to him, that he had been judged and condemned without his presence, and that the first ray of the morning sun was to witness his death. He had solemnly appealed against the sentence, telling Lord Pembroke, who had brought the announcement thereof, that such a deed was mere murder. Neither had he left anything undone that behoved him to do, to check the base purposes of his enemies by apprehensions of after-retribution. But they scoffed at his threats, and heeded not his remonstrances, justifying the illegal course they pursued by declaring that he had been taken in the act of treason. All communication was denied him with the world without, and even the materials for writing were refused, perhaps to guard against the chance of his doom being made known to others who might interfere to stay the execution, or perhaps to prevent him from recording for after-times the iniquity that was about to be committed. A priest was promised him in the morning, but in the meanwhile he remained in solitude. He heard his good yeoman, Blorkett, driven back from the door by the guards, and, with naught but his own thoughts to comfort and console him, he sat preparing himself for the grave as best he might. How often had he met the abhorred enemy, death, in the battlefield, and how often he staked life's bright jewel on the chances of an hour! How often had fate seemed near at hand in the burning march through the barren sands of the east, and in the deadly pestilence! but in all these shapes had the grim inevitable lord of the grave seemed less terrible than when waiting through the live-long night with the certainty of being murdered unresisting on the morning active exertion gallant daring the exercise of the high powers of the soul set at naught the idea of annihilation and when with eager fire man puts forth all his faculties in the moment of danger the very possession tells him that he is immortal, and makes the open gate of the tomb appear but the portal of a better world. It is the cold, calm, slow approach of the dark hour of passage, when the mind has naught to work upon but that one idea, which smears the dart with all the venom that it is capable of bearing. Then rise up all those dark doubts and apprehensions, with which the evil spirit besieges the small garrison of faith. Then come the sweet and lingering affections of the world, the loves, the hopes, the wishes, the prospects, the enjoyments. Then speak the memories of dear things past, never to be again, of voices heard for the last time, of looks to be seen no more. It is a terrible and an awful thing, even for the stoutest heart and best prepared spirit, to wait in silence and in solitude for the approach of the King of Terrors. The young knight strove vigorously to repel all weakness, but he could not shut out regret. Twelve hours had scarcely passed since, in the pride of success and the vanity of hope, 
he had clasped her he loved in his arms, and fancied that fate itself could scarcely sever them. And now he was to lose her for ever. Would she forget him when he was gone? Would she give her hand to another? Would the gay wedding train pass by and the minstrel's song sound loud and the laugh and the smile and the jest go round and all be joyful in the halls of Lindwell and he lay mouldering in the cold earth hard by? But love and trust and confidence said no, and though it might be selfish, there was a balm in the belief that Lucy would mourn him when he was gone, aye, that she had promised to love him and be his even beyond the grave. Of such things were his thoughts as he gazed forth on that solemn night, but suddenly something, he knew not what, called its attention from himself, and he looked down from the window of his chamber upon the top of the wall below. The distance was some thirty feet, the night was dark, for the moon had gone early down, but even in the dim obscurity he thought he saw something like a man's head appear above the battlement. In a moment after, with a bound as if it had been thrown over by an engine, a human body sprang upon the top of the wall, ran forward to the tower in which he was confined, and struck the stonework with its arm. The next instant, without any apparent footing, he could perceive one leg stretched upwards, while the hand seemed to have obtained a grasp of the wall itself, and then the rest of the body ascended to the height of about four feet from the ground, sticking fast, like a squirrel swarming up a large beech tree. A long thin arm was then extended, far overhead, to a deep window, just beneath that at which the young knight stood, and by it the whole body was drawn up into the aperture of the wall, while a sentinel passed by with slow and measured steps. As soon as the soldier was gone, the arm was again stretched forth in the direction of the casement from which Hugh was gazing down, and the hand struck once or twice against the wall in different places, making a slight grating sound, as if it were armed with some metal instrument. At length it remained fixed, and then the head and shoulders were protruded from the opening of the window below, the feet resting upon the stonework. Then came one of those extraordinary efforts of agility and pliability of limb, which Hugh had never witnessed but in one being on the earth. By that single hold which the fingers seemed to have on the wall, the body was again swung up till the knee and the hand met, and the left arm was stretched out towards the sill of the casement above. Although the figure appeared to be hump-backed, and consequently in that respect unlike the dwarf Tangel, Hugh de Mothama could not doubt that it was he, and, reaching down as far as possible, he whispered, "'Take my hand, Tangel!' In an instant the long, thin, monkey-like fingers of the dwarf clasped round his, as if they had been an iron vice, and with a bound that nearly threw the stout young soldier off his balance, Tangel sprang through the window into the room. "'Ha!' said he in a low tone. "'Who can keep out Tangel?' "'No one, it seems, my good boy,' answered Hugh. "'But what come you here for? "'I fear I cannot descend as you have mounted.' "'Here, help me off with my burden,' rejoined the boy, "'and thou wilt soon see what I come for. "'But we must whisper like mice, "'for tyrants have sharper ears than hares "'and keener eyes than cats. "'Here's a priest's gown and a hood for thee, "'and a chorister's coat for Tangel. 
Thou art just the height of the king's confessor, and I shall pass for his pouncet-bearer. He is a ladder, too, not much thicker than a spider's web, but strong enough to bear up the fat friar of Barnsdale. The feelings of Hugh de Mothmer at that moment must be conceived by the reader, for I will not attempt to address them. Life, liberty, hope were before him, and the transition was as great from despair to joy as it had lately been from happiness to grief. He caught the poor dwarf in his arms, saying, "'If I live, boy, I will reward thee. If I die, thy heart must do it.' "'No thanks to me,' replied Tangel, in a somewhat trembling voice. "'No thanks to me, good night. It is all Robin's doing. Though I was glad enough to have a finger in the pie, and he, great cart-horse, could no more climb up that wall than he could leap over Lincoln Church. But come, come, fix these hooks to the window.' Get the gown over thee, and then let us look out for the sentinel. He will pass again before we have all ready. But there are sentries in the outer court, too, said Hugh de Mothama. How shall we manage if we meet with any of them? Give them the word, said Tangel. I waited, clinging as close to the wall as ivy to an old tower, till I heard the round pass, and the word given. It was the three leopards. But there he goes now. Let us away, quick. He will soon be back again. Letting the ladder made of silken rope gently down from the window, Hugh bade the dwarf go first, but Tangel replied, No, no, I will come after, and bring the ladder with me. I have got my own staircase on the four daggers that I fixed into the crevices. Go down, holy father, go down, and if that book be a breviary, take it with you. It may serve as such, said Hugh, but ere I go, let me leave them a message. And taking a piece of half-charred wood from the fire, he wrote a few words with it upon the wall. Then approaching the window, he issued forth and descended easily and rapidly to the battlements. The dwarf seemed to have some difficulty in unfastening the hooks of the ladder, however, for he did not follow so quickly as Hugh expected and whether the sentinel had turned before he got fully to the end of his beat, or his pace was more rapid than before, I know not, but ere the boy began to descend, the soldier's steps were heard coming round from the other angle of the wall. Hugh gave a quick glance up to the window in the tower, and saw that the dwarf was aware of the sentry's approach, and also that the ladder hung so close to the building as not to be perceptible without near examination. His mind was made up in an instant, and folding his arms upon his chest he drew the hood farther over his face and walked on to meet the sentinel with a slow pace and his eyes bent upon the ground the moment the soldier turned the angle and saw him he exclaimed who goes there stand give the word the three leopards replied hugh in a calm tone pass cried the sentinel your blessing holy father this is a dark night dominus forbiscum replied hugh it is dark indeed my son but no nights are dark to the eye of god and turning with the sentinel on his round he added in a loud tone as they passed immediately under the window you did not see my boy upon your round did you he was to come hither with the books but marry he is a truant knave and is doubtless loitering with the pages in the king's ante-room i saw him not holy father said the soldier is the king still up ay he is answered hugh and will be for this hour to come and on he walked by the side of the man till they were out of sight of the window 
"'The boy is marvellous long in coming,' observed the pretended priest. "'Shall we turn back and see, good father?' asked the soldier. "'Oh, no,' replied Hugh. "'This is the way he should come, for he has to pass round by the court, you know, "'unless, indeed, he goes up the steps at the other side.' "'Just as he spoke, the sound of quick feet following was heard, "'and the sentry turned sharply once more, exclaiming, "'Who goes there?' "'The three leopards,' said a childish voice, very unlike that of Tangel, but Tangel it proved to be, dressed in his white cope and hood, and bearing a small bundle beneath his arm. "'Thou hast been playing truant,' cried the knight, "'and shalt do penance for this.' But he did not venture to carry far his pretended reprimand, lest some mistake between him and Tangel might discover the deceit.' and walking on by the side of the sentinel to the top of the flight of steps which led down into the great court close by another of the towers he there wished him good-night giving him a blessing in a solemn tone the guard at the bottom of the stone stairs heard the conversation between his comrade and the seeming priest above and without even asking the word walked on beside the young knight and the dwarf and passed them to the sentry at the gate the large wooden door under the archway was ajar while several of the soldiery were loitering about telling rude tales of love to some of the fair girls of nottingham who had ventured upon the drawbridge even at that late hour to lose their time and reputation if they had any with the men-at-arms for human nature and its follies were the same or very nearly the same as now at the end of the drawbridge however was a sentinel with his partisan in his hand taking sufficient part in the merriment of the others notwithstanding his being on duty to make him start forward in alarm at the sound of a step and show his alertness by lowering his weapon and fiercely demanding the word hugh gave it at once adding in a quiet tone ought you not to be more upon your guard my son against those who come in than those who go out pass on and mind your own business sir priest replied the sentry who was not a very reverent son of the church these knaves in their black gowns he murmured would have no one speak to a pretty lass but themselves hugh had continued to advance and he certainly did not now pause to discuss the question of duty with the soldier but hastened into the town through a great part of which it was absolutely necessary to pass and then through the dark streets of nottingham descending the hill rapidly and breathing lighter at every step hark he said at length speaking to the boy in a low tone do you not hear people following it is likely replied the dwarf i am not alone in nottingham we may have some difficulty at the gates however for the warder at the tower is as surly as a bear and though we all know him well yet it is a robe of sendal to a cursy jerkin he refuses to get up and turn the key in another minute the question was put to the proof the boy running forward to the town gate and knocking at the low door under the arch. At first there was no answer whatsoever, and the dwarf, after knocking again, shouted loudly, Ho, oh, Matthew Pole, Matthew Pole, open the door for a reverend father, who is going forth to shrive a sick man. To shrive a harlot or a barrel of sack, grumbled an angry voice from within. I will get up for none of ye, and if I did, I could not open the gate wide enough at this hour of the night for that fat friar of barnsdale to roll his belly out tis neither he of barnsdale nor tuck either cried the boy but a holy priest come from the castle then he had better go back whence he came replied the warder get you gone or i will throw that over thee which will soil thy garments for many a day 
Get thee gone, I say, and let me sleep, till these foul revelling lords come down from the castle, who go out every night to lie at Lamley. A noise of prancing horses and of eager voices was heard the moment after, coming rapidly down the hill, and Hugh de Mothama, putting his hand under his black robe, seized the hilt of the analis, or sharp knife, which had been accidentally left with him when his sword was taken away. "'I will sell my life dearly,' he said, speaking to the dwarf. "'Stand in the dark,' whispered Tangel, "'and they will not see you. "'These are the lords who sleep out of the town.' Hugh de had scarcely time to draw back when a troop of horsemen, who had in fact left the castle before him, came down to the gate, having followed the highway, while he had taken a shorter cut by some of the many flights of steps of which the good town of Nottingham was full. "'What ho!' cried a voice, which the young lord recognised right well. "'Open the gate. Are you the warder's boy?' "'No, please you, noble lord,' replied Tangel, "'and I cannot make old surly Matthew Pole draw a bolt or turn a key, although he knows we are in haste.' "'What ho! Open the gate,' repeated the voice in a loud tone. "'How know you that I am a noble lord, my man?' "'Because you sit your horse like the Earl of Mortimer.' answered the boy you may say so indeed said the other laughing but who is that under the arch that is my uncle replied tangel the good priest of pierrepont he is going to shrive the man that fell over the rock as your lordship knows just at sundown i know nothing about him replied mortimer but i do know that if this order come not forth his thrift shall be a short one Go in, Jenkin, and slip me his ears with thy knife till they be the shape of a curs. Ha! he comes at length. How now, warder, how dare you keep me waiting here? By the Lord, I am minded to hang thee over the gate. The burly old man grumbled forth something about his lantern having gone out, and then added in a louder tone, I did not expect you, my lord, so soon to-night. You are wont to be an hour later. Aye, but we have some sharp business at daybreak to-morrow cried Mortimer, so we must be abed by times. Slowly, and as if unwillingly, the warder drew down the large oak bar, saying, You must give the word, my lord. The three leopards, replied Mortimer. Come quick, open the gate, or, by my halidome, it shall be worse for you. With provoking slowness, however, the old man undid bolt after bolt, and then threw wide the heavy wooden valves, and without further question the train of Mortimer rode out, his very robes brushing against Hugh de Mothimer as he passed. The young knight and the boy followed slowly, and before the gates could be closed again, coming rapidly from the neighbouring streets, several other men on foot issued forth in silence without giving any word to the warder. "'Ah, you thieves!' said good Matthew Pole, to the last of them. "'If I chose to shut you in, there would be fine hanging to-morrow.' "'No, no,' replied the man. "'There will be one hung to-night, good Matthew, and he would serve for all. "'You don't think we let the hanging begin without having the first hand in it?' "'A straggling house or two on the outside of the gate were passed in a few minutes. "'A lane amongst trees lay to the right and left, "'and a little stile presented itself in the hedge, "'formed of two broad stones laid perpendicularly, "'and two horizontal ones for steps.' Over these the boy sprang at a leap before Hugh de Mothimer, who followed quickly, though somewhat more deliberately. The moment he was passed, a hand seized him, and a voice cried, "'Free, free, my good lord!' "'But, my fay, we shall have all the honest part of the court under the green boughs of Sherwood ere long. 
taking the king's venison will become the only lawful source of honest men, for if they don't strike at his deer, he will strike at their heads. Now, oh, Robin, is that you? said Hugh. This is all thy doing, and I owe thee life. Faith, not mine, replied Robin Hood. Tis the boys, tis the boys. My best contrivance was to get into the castle court to-morrow, by one device or another, secure the gate, send an arrow into Mortimer's heart, and another into the headsman's eye, make a general fight of it, while you were set free, and then run away as best we could. "'Twas a bad scheme, but yet at that early hour we could have carried it through, while one half the world was asleep and the other unarmed. But Tangel declared that he could run up the wall like a cat, so we let him try, taking care to have men and ladders ready to bring him off safe if he were caught. So tis his doing, my lord, for you contrived to get the elf's love while he was with you. "'And he has mine for ever,' answered Hugh. "'But, alas, my love can be of little benefit to any one now.' "'Nay, nay, never think so,' replied the outlaw. "'As much benefit as ever, my good lord. "'Cast off your courtly garments. "'Take to the forest green. "'With your own strong right hand defend yourself and your friends. "'Set courts and kings at naught and defiance, "'and you will never want the means of doing a kind act to those who serve you. "'I ought not, perhaps, to boast.' But Robin Hood, the King of Sherwood, has not less power within his own domain than the third Harry on the throne of England. But, by my faith, I hope the Blessed Virgin has holpen Scathelock and the Miller with their band to get out of the gates, for they are long a-coming, and there will be fine hunting in every hole of Nottingham to-morrow morning. I came over the wall with Hardy and Pell. "'They are safe enough, they are safe enough, reckless Robin,' cried Tangel. I heard the miller's long tongue bandying words with surly old Matthew Pole, as if ever one bell stopped another. But hark, there are their steps, and we had better get on, for I have a call to sleep just now. Well, thou shalt sleep as long as thou wilt to-morrow, said Robin, for thy good service to-night. But by your leave, my lord, you and I must ride far, for it were as well to leave no trace of you in the neighbourhood of Nottingham. Here a strong horse is nigh at hand, and if you follow my counsel, you'll be five-and-twenty miles from the place where they expected to find you by daybreak. It will be better for us all to disperse, and to quit this part of the county. My men have their orders, and I am ready. The counsel was one that Hugh de Mothamor was very willing to follow, and ere many minutes more had passed, he and Robin Hood were riding through the dark shady roads of Sherwood, as fast as the obscurity of the night would permit. End of chapter 30